The wailing and the flutes could be heard in the distance as they approached the house. And inside the home, the tears flowed. The sobs were heaving and they're uncontrollable. The weeping was heavy and the grief was potent. And death, that enemy that someday meets all of us, had met someone in this home and had visited and taken an only daughter and the mourning for her had already begun. The 12-year-old girl was very sick and perhaps something could have been done for her while she was still alive and at the point of death, but now that she was dead, what could be done for her? Life had left her body and she was just a corpse, never to move again, never to breathe again, never to laugh again, never to marry or have children or grandchildren, just dead, gone, soon to be buried. Death, it takes, it plunders, it barges into our lives without permission and robs us of those we love and it refuses to give them back. It follows us all around our lives, threatening to take us as well. Is there anyone who can stand against it? Is there anyone that can say no and it will listen? Is there anyone who can say no more and it will stop taking from us? Before we get ahead of ourselves, we need to rewind a little bit because where we started here is near the end of this story. Let's go back to the beginning. Jesus had decided to cross the Sea of Galilee, which is um, a lake. He was going from the western side over to the eastern side. And on the west is, for you guys, on the west is the land of Israel. And then going over the Sea of Galilee is the, the land of the Gerasenes, which are um, non-Jewish people. And while crossing a group, with his group of disciples, probably about 12 of them, a threatening storm came down upon them. And they thought they were going to die. And then they go and they wake up Jesus from his sleep in the boat. And they tell him, uh, we're dying. Wake up. And he stands up and he rebukes the wind and the waves, and they stop. The raging waves turn to calm, and his disciples' jaws dropped. They're filled with fear and amazement, we're told, and they start asking each other, who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? And they finish crossing uh, the lake over to the other side, and as soon as the word is, as soon as Jesus disembarked the boat, so as soon as he gets his feet on the, the shore of the other side, all of a sudden this naked homeless man who's not in his right mind comes running up to them. And in reality, he wasn't necessarily crazy, but he was suffering from uh, being demonized by thousands of demons, an army of demons. And the crazy thing is that Jesus was not afraid of this man or the demons, but the demons were afraid of Jesus, one man against thousands. And they fell down before Jesus and begged him, Do not torment us. Do not destroy us. Instead they asked, Would you send us into this herd of pigs? And so Jesus gave them permission. The pigs rushed off the steep bank and drowned in the lake that the disciples had just nearly drowned in while they were crossing over it to meet this man. And the herdsmen that were taking care of the pigs reported these things to the townspeople. And the townspeople came and they saw how the man had been transformed. And they heard how Jesus was the one who did it. And they were also afraid just like the disciples were in the boat. They're filled with such a great fear that they say, Jesus, please leave. We don't want you here anymore. In the boat, the disciples feared and marveled at Jesus, asking, who is this? This guy controls the wind and the waves, and they, they obey him. He tells them what to do. And then these locals, they're afraid too, but they don't care who Jesus is. They're not asking, who is this guy? They just want him gone. He's too much for them to handle. And so Jesus does as he asks. He leaves. But before leaving, the formerly demonized man says, I want to follow you. I want to be with you. I want to be one of your disciples. And Jesus says, no, you're, you go back to the home that you came from. This, this home, the physical home that he hadn't been in in who knows how long, because he's had this 
these demons driving around in the desert, and the family that lives there that he hasn't seen in who knows how long, he says, go back to them. I have this assignment for you. Declare to them how much God has done for you. And so then he goes back and he declares to them how much Jesus has done for him. He recognizes that God is working through Jesus, that what Jesus did in his life is what God did in his life. And he becomes, if you think about it, the first missionary sent by Jesus to the Gentile world out of Israel. So imagine you were in these disciples' sandals, because they wore sandals, not shoes, not Nikes. Imagine you're in the disciples' sandals. Imagine you had left everything behind, left your fishing boat behind, or your tax collector's booth, or whatever it is you left behind, and you're following with Jesus and learning from him to become like him. You want to do what he does. You want to be able to take his teachings and let them sink deep into your life. And imagine you're experiencing what they've been experiencing. He's more powerful than a storm, more powerful than an army of demons. Both bow down to Jesus, doing whatever he says. And so you may be asking, What's next? This guy can tell a storm what to do. He can just tell demons. Yeah, yeah, get out of here. A whole legion of demons. And the amazing thing is that we don't have to just imagine this. We don't just have to put ourselves in the disciples' sandals. But this same Jesus is alive today. And if we've trusted in him, that's who we're following. That's who we're becoming like. He's alive and is continuing to do his work. And so we can hear this story today not only as something cool or interesting or powerful that Jesus did way back when, but something powerful that he's doing today um, in us, through us, around us, around the world. And he's been doing it down through the centuries, and he will continue doing it down as time goes on. So upon crossing back over the Sea of Galilee and landing back in the land of Israel, a crowd welcomed Jesus. And so let's read verses 40 through 42 in Luke chapter 8, when they land back on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. So there's this crowd, and a man named Jairus pushes himself through the crowd and puts himself down at Jesus' feet, bows down, lays at his feet. And we're told he's the ruler of the local synagogue, which means he'd be in charge of like the maintenance of the synagogue building and the kind of prepping for the services. Not necessarily giving a sermon, but he's lining up who's going to be um, reading the scriptures and making sure everything's attended to for that day. And he's, so he's a, a respectable man in the community. He's a leader in Israel's religious life. People are coming, and they're seeing Jairus, ruler of synagogue. He's the one that lets us um, worship and maintains this place and gets everything set up for us. But he finds himself in a desperate Situation, And so this prominent community figure throws himself down on the ground at Jesus' feet. His daughter, his only daughter, is dying. And he doesn't appeal to Jesus based on his position, like, hey, I'm the ruler of the synagogue, it'd be really nice if you come help me. He just lays himself down. He doesn't tell Jesus about his status. He approaches Jesus in an undignified way. He lays himself at Jesus' feet, believing Jesus is the only hope for his daughter to live. So for you... Put yourself in this situation. Have you ever been in a situation like this man? You find yourself perhaps driving your car, pleading with God to heal someone you love. You wet your pillow with tears at night, begging God to help someone you care about, to bring healing, to bring restoration, to make it better. And just as this man approached Jesus with a request, we too approach Jesus in prayer. And he's not some distant, far-off Lord, but we're told by the Spirit he's actually comes to dwell inside of us and in us as a church. And so he's not far off and distant. He's right here. 
Jesus agreed to go with him, and the crowd follows as well, pressing around him. And this is when the journey to Jairus' house is interrupted. Jairus comes, please come heal my daughter, and then Jesus apparently says, okay, I'll go with you. It gets interrupted, so let's read starting in the second half of verse 42. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there is a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. Luke describes this woman's situation for us. She has a condition and has spent all of her money going to the doctors. I mean, maybe you've been in a position like that where it's like, I've got this issue and I'm going to doctor to doctor to doctor, specialist to specialist to specialist, and nobody can figure out what the issue is. Nobody can tell me what's wrong with me. She goes to all these doctors, spends all she has, and still she's not healed. So that tells us how difficult this condition is for her. She's willing to spend anything to get rid of it. What exactly is her condition? And we you know, have to kind of talk as adults here. Verse 43 says, She had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And the term here is similar to the one used in Leviticus 15.19 for menstruation. So basically she's had a period for 12 years, nonstop, constant, or at least frequent. And that's her condition physically. But this condition affects her in other ways, namely religiously and socially. Because we need to go back to the book of Leviticus, the third book of the Bible, which is giving us instructions for how God's people are to live. And the question Leviticus answers is, how can a holy God dwell amongst an unholy, sinful people? What do they need to do in order for that to happen? Because the, issue, the problem is God is holy. The Bible often says, holy, 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 which is you know, emphasizing it. This is, God is really holy, and holy just means set apart, unique. He's in a class all by himself. And what puts God in a class all by himself that's different from us. It's that he, can, he created us. He's the giver of life. We, you know, we can have babies and we can build things, but all of it is working with pre-existing material. God is the creator and the giver of life. That's what puts him in a class all by himself, at least one of the main things that puts him in a class all by himself. And so death, as the giver of life, death has no business being in his presence. God gives life, and so death in his presence cannot exist. And so when we look at the uh, laws in the book of Leviticus, there's laws that are about your moral cleanness, like you know, do this and do that, and you know, treat people like this, and you know, have a morally good, pure life. But then there's also ritually pure, or ritually clean. And in order to be in a ritually pure state, you had to separate yourself from anything related to death. And in that day, they saw a diseased skin, dead bodies, and certain bodily fluids as things that symbolize death. And we can imagine this um, for, uh, for blood, because blood, if you've got your blood in your body, that's good. You're living. If the blood goes out of your body, you're dead. So the loss of blood is this symbol or image of, of death. And we should remember that, uh, or learn that unclean isn't a synonym for sinful. So if a person was unclean, that doesn't mean, oh, you're like a dirty sinner. It just means you have some, you've come in contact with something or you yourself are experiencing something that puts you into a state of ritually unclean. And this was a way for them to learn um, what it meant to live in God's presence. And it's not necessarily sinful to be unclean. What is wrong is going into God's presence while you're in that state. And Leviticus 15 addresses the issue this woman has. It includes laws about different bodily discharges which make someone unclean. And while a woman is uh, having her period, she's considered unclean in the nation of Israel. And blood represented life, and the loss of blood 
represented death. So anyone who has a condition that causes a flow of blood is unclean. Anyone who touches her is unclean. Anyone she lies or sits next to is unclean. Anyone who touches her is unclean. And the priest would be the one to pronounce her clean, declaring that she has been restored to a, rate, a state of ritual purity. And when we come together on a Sunday, we, this order that we, you know, we have a, a prayer and songs and a scripture reading and we have a sermon and we have Lord's Supper, this is all called a liturgy. It's like an order of how things or service is ordered. And it's designed to direct our attention to God and guide us in worshiping Him. And you can think of the book of Leviticus as the nation of Israel's liturgy, except it wasn't just like you know an hour and 15 minutes on a Sunday. It was all the time. It was all of life. Here's the things that can make you unclean. Here's the things that you need to do to stay clean. And then, So all of their life, they're thinking about, man, I can get unclean so easily and it's so hard for me to stay that way. And that's what is required for me to come before this holy God. Like If I'm going to be with him in his presence, like I need to uh, not be unclean. I need to be clean. And this was, these laws were designed to give Israel practices that taught them of what's true about God and what's true about themselves. God is holy. He's the totally unique creator of all of life. Death does not belong in his presence. And there's, he's seeing that over and over and over again. And this woman we meet in the Gospel according to Luke lived this liturgy for 12 long years. The liturgy that death has no place in God's presence because she had this discharge of blood that did not stop. She is well learned the truth that God is utterly separate. He's holy, 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 and death does not belong in his presence. So she's not able to attend the synagogue meeting. She's not able to go up to the temple. She's not able to be with other people because if they touch her, she becomes unclean. If she's unclean, she can't go in God's presence. So she's just had to separate herself. And unclean, I think we could say, had become her identity. Like a scarlet letter on her or coat or something. She was labeled as one unable to come before a holy God. And, uh, and, and one with whom others cannot associate, lest they become unclean as well. She's lived as a walking symbol of death for 12 years. So imagine her desperation. She, has, she bears the frustration, the difficulty and pain of whatever is causing this bleeding. And she also bears the pain of isolation from the religious community and her social community of just society at large. She cannot touch or be touched because that would make others unclean. She can't come to the synagogue services that Jairus runs. She used all her resources in hopes that she would be able to find a doctor, someone who can heal her of this issue so that she could go back to normal life. And she is now broke. Of, you know, she doesn't have any money. She's broke, and she remains broken. She's used everything she has to try and do this. So for yourself, have you ever felt like this? Have you ever done something that made you feel so unclean inside that you swear when people look at you, they can just see it. They, they know. They look at you and you're like, they, they know what I've done. So something you've done that's made you feel so ashamed that if anyone knew about it, you think they would be so disgusted and would never be my friend. They would never talk to me. They wouldn't even want to associate with me. If you've ever been excluded from a group or made fun of or talked about as you walked by, and I've felt all these things. I'm sure all of you have felt them at times as well. And I think a lot of people outside the church feel this way as well. When I was working at a nursing home when I was in college. There was a lady I worked with, and you know, I tried to talk about my faith with the people I worked with. And this lady said, if I ever set foot in a church, the lightning would strike, would strike me dead because she just felt so unworthy to go to be with God's people or to be in God's presence. She had this sense of feeling like, I'm just so unclean, I'm, you know, I'm disgusting, I've done things bad, I can't be with God. 
So let's continue reading what this woman does in verse 44. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. So these two characters we met, Jairus and this woman. And the juxtaposition between them, you know, when you put them together, the contrast between them almost gives you whiplash. Because you have this guy who's the re- involved in the religious life of this town of Israel, maintaining the synagogue, helping work its worship services. And then you have this woman who's ostracized from both. She can't be within the community, the religious community, or the society. She has to be separated. So to put them together, it almost gives you whiplash looking from one to the other. And yet both are in a desperate situation with no hope besides Jesus. And notice, Jairus' 12-year-old daughter is at the point of death. And this woman has suffered this discharge of blood for 12 years. 12-year-old daughter, 12 years. And she's a walking symbol of death, according to Israel's liturgy. Instead of Jesus being contaminated by this woman's uncleanness, she becomes contaminated by his cleanness. Instead of her uncleanness contaminating Jesus, his power overcomes her uncleanness. She becomes healed. Instead of giving whatever she has to him, he gives what he has to her. And isn't that what we all need? We're dirty, unclean, and sinful. And Ephesians 2 says we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We were dead, that's our testimony. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God has made us alive in Christ. We're not worthy to come before a holy God, but Jesus is the one we need to remove our uncleanness. He's the one who takes away our sin. He's the one through whom we're declared righteous and blameless and white as snow in God's sight. Jesus wants the person who touched him to come forward. He, uh, and no one's stepping forward. They all deny it. And Peter says, Master, uh, I don't know if you've noticed, uh, there's a crowd pressing in all around you and you're asking, who touched you? Who isn't touching you? would be an easier question to ask. You've got this crowd around you. That, how are we supposed to tell who touched you? You're, everyone touched you. But Jesus has someone specific in mind. Jesus knows someone has reached out in faith and they've been healed by him. You may wonder, why does she want to hide? I mean, for starters, she risked everyone she touched in that crowd becoming unclean. You know, could you imagine? Oh, it's the lady, it's the lady with the discharge of blood. She just walked through all of us. What are you doing out here? You know, she'd all of a sudden get ridiculed. Like, you just got all of us unclean. She knew she wasn't supposed to be there, but in her desperation and with faith, she ignored those restrictions. And she probably feels unworthy to have Jesus' attention. She doesn't even call out for him. She just says, I'm just going to get in, I'm going to touch him and see if this works, and then I'm going to get out. Nobody has to you know, make a fuss about it. But Jesus wants her to come forward and bear witness to what has happened in her life. Jesus changes this woman's life in an instant, and he wants to do even more. He, she, he wants, after she comes and tells her story, you can almost hear the crowd gasp, she, she's unclean? Was I touched by her? Am I unclean now? And you can sense, every, maybe there's this tension that everyone's like, what? The unclean lady's in our crowd. What's she doing? But Jesus speaks words of comfort over her in verse 48. He said, verse 48 says, And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. 
she's experienced a complete reversal of her situation. She was unclean and on the outside of society and religious life, and now she is clean and called daughter. She's been brought into Jesus' family. She's been brought from the outside to the inside. She once was far, but she's been brought near. She was estranged, but now she's brought back in by Jesus. Jesus didn't even touch her. She just touched Jesus. Earlier in this chapter, Jesus said, those who hear the word of God and do it are his mother and brothers and sisters. And this woman has followed God's word, putting her faith on display, and thus she's now part of Jesus' family. You've, you've listened, you've obeyed, you've done God's word. And he says to her, your faith has made you well. He commends her faith. She is in this desperate situation. She pushes through the restrictions, pushes through the crowd, and, out and reaches out in faith, and he says, your faith has made you well. He affirms her. And her, her wellness is a blend of physical and social and spiritual, spiritual salvation. The word here, uh, made you well, is the word for translated salvation in other places. And so it just depends on the translator. Was Your faith has saved you, or your faith has made you well. It's interesting, Jesus, if I remember right, he says this to four different times in Luke's Gospel, where he says, that was three, four, four different times in Luke's Gospel, where he says, your faith has made you blank. Usually it's salvation or made you well. And it's the same word used four times. And he come, so she gets commended instead of reprimanded. And he says, go in peace. It's this Hebrew blessing. And it's more than just, you know, you don't, you're not really worrying about anything. But it means go as one restored to a proper relationship with God. In Hebrew, the word peace is shalom. It means everything is as it's supposed to be. Everything is well. Everything is healthy. Everything is connected. It's all in harmony. And so he's telling her, look, everything has now been put back to right in your life. And he says, go in peace, it's about shalom is about wholeness. And Jesus brought wholeness and wellness and health to this woman in all aspects of her life. So think about the words that Jesus says to her. Put yourself in this story. What words do you long to hear from Jesus? What might he do and say if you sought him out and invited him into your pain and desperation? I just want you to take, you know, we often do not have, do well with silence. And we took like 60 seconds of silence earlier in this service. That might have been the only 60 seconds of silence you had all week because either we're listening to something, we have kids or other people around or work or we're outside and we hear people talking. It's like silence is something we need. So I want you to take 60 seconds of silence and listen to what Jesus might have to say to you today. That he says this woman, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And so take a couple, uh, 60 seconds of silence and invite him into your pain and your hurt and listen to what he wants to say to you. Go ahead.
all this excitement, we may have forgotten about Jairus, the man with the daughter on her deathbed. And verse 49 brings him back into focus. It says, while he, meaning Jesus, was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Put yourself in Jairus' situation. He came to Jesus, pushes his way through the crowd. His daughter is on her deathbed. Jesus agrees to come. Oh, good, there's hope. There's maybe hope here that she will not actually die. But then on their way, Jesus stops. And he just starts asking, who touched me? Who is it that touched me? Jesus? She's on her deathbed, Jesus. Did you forget that part? Who, Who touched me? The disciples are like, Jesus, everyone's touching you. What are you talking about? And Jairus just sits there and and waits for Jesus to get this question answered. His daughter's on her deathbed. And yet Jesus insists on stopping and asking, who touched me? And he waits for someone to come forward. Everyone denies it and just lets the awkwardness sit there, waits for someone to finally come forward. You can imagine Jairus tapping his foot. You can look at his watch, like kind of wringing his hands. Like, she's going to die, Jesus. We need to get going. Finally, a woman comes forward with a story of her desperate situation, her healing. And she falls before Jesus' feet, just like Jairus had done not so long ago, falling before Jesus' feet. And while Jairus listens to Jesus telling her these words, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. You'd think that those are the words he would hope that Jesus would speak to his daughter. Daughter, your father's faith has made you well, or something like that. You're, you're well, like she's on her deathbed. But as He's listening to Jesus say that. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Someone from Jairus' house comes up behind him. You can imagine, you know, they put their hand on his shoulder, turns to listen. He says, your daughter is dead. Your daughter is dead. And if you had moments in your life where someone said words to you that just didn't seem real at first, words to which your first reaction was, no, it isn't true. That, that That can't be. I don't believe you. Words like, your father and I are getting a divorce. We're letting you go. You're fired. The test results are in. It's cancer. Words that often people would say, are you sitting down right now when they're on the phone or they're at your house? Jairus hears, your daughter is dead. We can imagine how Jairus felt because we felt it too. The words ring in his ears. Numbness washes over his body. And for a moment, the crowd and Jesus and this woman just kind of fades to the background. And someone else's words snap him back to the moment. He hears Jesus saying to him, you know, just imagine, you know, face goes white and he's sitting there and all of a sudden he hears Jesus saying to him, do not not fear. Jesus, do not fear. Only believe and she will be well. What does faith look like in this situation? His daughter is dead. He believed Jesus could do something while she was still alive and on the brink of death, but now she's dead. It's one thing to heal a sickness or a disease. It's another thing to bring someone back from the dead. And now we're back to where we started this morning. As they approach Jairus' house, they can hear the mourners weeping and they can hear the crying and they're grieving over the dead girl. And then Jesus allows three of his disciples to come in with him, plus the mother and the father of the girl, Jairus and his wife. Peter, James, and John go in with them. These three become Jesus' inner circle. And Jesus tells those mourning, those people are in the house mourning, don't weep because the girl's not dead, but she's sleeping. And then they laugh at Jesus because 
They know she's dead. That's what Luke says. They laugh because they know she's dead. They've checked it over. She's gone. The physicians could do nothing for the woman, and the mourners believe Jesus can't do anything for this girl. After everyone had left, Jesus then walked up to the girl, took her by the hand, and said, Child, arise. What would you expect to happen if someone spoke to a corpse at a funeral? Just walked up to it, grabbed a person's hand in a casket, and said, Arise. You'd be like, Oh, okay. That's kind of weird. This isn't the first time Jesus has spoken to a dead person. Back in chapter 7, the only son of a widow walks up to the, the plank they're carrying him on, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the same thing happened then that happens in this situation. The dead person listened. It says the girl's spirit returned to her, and she got up at once, and then Jesus says, Give her something to eat. Then he strictly charged those present to tell no one what had happened. It needs to be kept a secret because people don't yet understand the sort of king Jesus is. And this kind of publicity is going to escalate things a little too quickly for his timetable. You may need to tell no one about this. But it also shows us that Jesus didn't do this to make a name for himself or to show off because he's just, you three disciples come in, mom and dad, let's go in, everyone else get out. He's not saying, let me show you guys how, how powerful I am and how great I am. He did this out of compassion for them, out of love for them. He did it because it's his purpose to seek and save the lost, to release and restore what's broken. And according to the book of Leviticus, a dead person can make someone unclean. And so Jesus in this situation should move from ritually pure, ritually clean, to ritually unclean, ritually impure. But instead, he gives life to the dead. The girl's deadness does not infect him with uncleanness, but it says his life and power gives life to her. And this isn't the first time Jesus touched something he shouldn't. He's touched a leper, and he touched the, uh, the plank of the, the, the dead son we were just talking about. And those things should have made him unclean. He could have gotten leprosy. He, he should be, he's unclean now. He has to be separated from other people. He touched a dead person's plank. Now he's unclean from that. But in every case, those people don't give Jesus what they have, but instead he gives them what he has. Life, health, wellness, wholeness. And for us, when we place our faith in Christ, in Christ, what's his becomes ours, and what's ours gets taken care of by him. He takes away our uncleanness, our sinfulness, our deadness, our brokenness, and he gives us his righteousness, his holiness, his wholeness. And we too can hear the words, Daughter or son, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Those are words I think every human heart longs to hear. We'll get into that a little bit more later. When we feel that we are far beyond Jesus' help, we need to hear the words that Jesus speaks to Jairus. Do not fear. Only believe and you will be well. Both Jairus and the woman we're in desperate situations with no hope. And desperation comes out of a longing, a need. And I think uh, there's two universal feelings that everyone has. Everyone feels that something is wrong and something is missing. Something is wrong and something is missing. And both of these feelings can send us on a desperate search for that. What's, what's wrong? How do I fix this? What's missing? Where can I find it? They send us on a desperate search. When we feel that something is wrong... We're going to be on a search for the solution. 
ask a hundred people on the street, hey, what's wrong with the world? And you would get a hundred different answers. It doesn't matter that there are a hundred different answers. The fact is everyone recognizes something is wrong. Something is wrong in this world. Why can't we just get along? Why do the political parties just fight with each other? Why can't they do things? Why do bosses mistreat people? Why don't employees actually work? Why is this country or that country or whatever so messed up? Everyone can recognize something is wrong. And if you get a bit more personal and ask them, what would you say is wrong with you? They might feel a little offended. Is you know, what's wrong with the world? Oh, here they might have all these ideas. Tell me what's wrong with you. And then I think, uh, I don't really want to share that with you. But if they're, they go home and they're sitting by themselves and they're like, that was a, that's a weird question they asked me. And if they're being honest with themselves, they feel that something is wrong with them as well. I can't get it together. I'm lazy. I'm a cheater. I don't work hard enough. I drink too much. I'm too fat. I'm selfish. I don't give back enough. I'm a bad mom. I'm a bad dad. I'm a bad husband. I'm a bad wife. I'm a bad son. I'm a bad daughter. And we can feel the brokenness in us and around us. We feel that something is wrong and we look for someone or something to fix it. We also feel that something is missing. When we feel that something is missing, we will look for something to fill us. What is that thing I'm missing? I just feel like I have to find it. What is missing? And we go on this long search. We're, we're looking for what will finally make us happy or secure or significant or special or successful. And ask anyone on the street what they most want in life. And they can probably tell you what they're pursuing after. And even if they aren't able to put it on into words, they are on a search. Maybe they say they've already found what they want. They've come to the end of that quest for what's missing, and they found it in a a lover or a job or a hobby or whatever else. But what we're looking for, these two questions show us, what we're looking for is a Savior and a God. We're looking for a Savior to save us from what's broken, from what's wrong with us and what's wrong with the world. Something is wrong. I need something that needs to save me from this. And we might put the... our, we may look to our own efforts. We might look to, if I do this, or do this, or do that, or do that, or if I get this, that'll fix what's wrong with me and it'll fix what's wrong with the world. If we just vote Republican, if we just vote Democrat, if we just could do this, then the world will be fixed. We're looking for a Savior. And we're looking for a God to fill in the hole of what we feel is missing. And everyone, no matter who you talk to, makes a God out of something. We're all in search of something that will fill us, that will quench the thirst and satisfy the hunger deep inside us and take away the ache that something is missing. We're looking for something worthy of orbiting our lives around, whether it's work or kids or a spouse or drugs or alcohol or friends or amusement. We all orbit our lives around something. And this true story we've heard today shows us a God and Savior who is both moved by what's broken and missing in our lives and who moves towards us in our brokenness and our desperation. He's moved by our desperate situations and he moves into those desperate situations. Both Jairus and this woman brought their desperate need to Jesus and what they experienced was salvation. Jesus did for them what they could not do for themselves. And Jesus did for them what no one else was able to do for them. She had spent all her money on these doctors. Jairus, she's at the point of death, goes and goes to Jesus. I can't, they knew, I can't do this for myself. She couldn't get herself clean. She couldn't heal this thing she had. Jairus couldn't do anything for his daughter. And they saw no one else could do for this for us. Jesus did for them what they couldn't do for themselves and what no one else could do for them. So for you, what's your desperate situation? Have you come to the end of yourself? Have you given up on trying to fix yourself? Have you finally concluded that nothing in this world would ever fill a hole inside of you or satisfy the deep longing to be loved? 
secure, and significant? Have you admitted that you have no hope besides Jesus? We'll only come to Jesus when we're ready to admit, I'm in a desperate situation, and I need someone to do for, do for me what I'm unable to do for myself. And we start believing Jesus is our only hope. And so put yourself in this story. Imagine you're this woman. You've got this issue that's been plaguing you for years, and you bring it to Jesus. Well, how do you think he responds? In your mind, when you think, when I bring, when I'm just a mess, and I come to God, how do you think he responds to that? I think for some of us, we think, you again? Can't can you just get it together, clean yourself up? Or we think, he's a, I'm not even going to go bother him. He's too busy. This woman, that's kind of what she does. She kind of sneaks in, and she, in faith, she's saying, only Jesus can do this for me. But she also is, seems a little afraid of, like, I don't know if he would even like me that I'm coming to him. I don't know what he's going to say to me. Do you think he reprimands you? He's disappointed that he's fed up, that he's finally going to have enough of you. But look at this story. What? How does Jesus respond? Who, who, who touched me? Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. You think that's how Jesus responds to you when you bring your desperate situation to him? Daughter or son, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. What does faith look like according to these stories? Faith runs to Jesus through all obstacles because he's our only hope. The woman overcame the potential ridicule of the crowd. Jairus overcame the ridicule of the people mourning, laughing. <clears throat> Jesus, he's dead. You, she's dead. You can't do anything for her. And these two believed Jesus was their only hope, and nothing was going to stand in their way of getting to him. They acted on their belief that Jesus could do for them what no one else could do for them and what they couldn't do for themselves. And if we believe that Jesus is our only hope, nothing in any day or any week or any year is going to stop us from getting ourselves to him. And Luke told us in the very first verses, as he's writing this gospel account, I've written this, that you may be, have certainty about what you've been taught, about what you believe. This narrative of the good news is that we would have certainty. And Luke has showed us that Jesus uh, is Lord over both the physical and the spiritual world. And so that's telling us, when we're wondering, should I be trusting in something else? Should I be doing this myself? Should I be doing this a different way? And Jesus... Luke writes showing, no, your trust is not misplaced. Jesus has authority and power over the physical world and the spiritual world. We can have confidence in following him and trusting him. Jesus is the one who can do all that he says and he can fulfill all that God has promised. The woman is healed by touching Jesus. The girl is raised by Jesus' word. He, Jesus calms a storm with his command. He conquered a legion of demons. What could stand in his way that we face in our lives? But something that may cause us to our certainty and our confidence to go down, we may ask, well, why am I not experiencing healing? I've had this issue for a long time, and I've asked for healing, and it hasn't gone away. Or, I know this person who has this issue, and I prayed for them. Or, well, you even have someone who died that you prayed for. And we think, well, okay, it seems like something Jesus did 2,000 years ago, but I don't think he's doing it today. Why didn't Jesus answer my prayer? And the truth is, the salvation Jesus offers, which includes healing of diseases and raising the dead, is, an already, is already here, but not yet fully here. It's a good phrase to remember. Already, but not yet. Already, but not yet. Is a key truth for what Jesus' kingdom looks like. It is already here, but it's not yet here in full. The salvation Jesus offers 
is already here. We can say, I have been saved. And I am being saved as I'm released from the power of sin and Satan and death. And I will be saved one day. That's the not yet. Jesus' salvation he offers is already here, but it's not yet fully here. And different people will experience different measures of it throughout their lives. But all who trust in Jesus will experience it in full when he returns. And we read the Beatitudes in our first scripture reading. You know, blessed are these, and blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who hunger, and all those sorts of things. And those are experienced at different times. They are a promise fulfilled in Jesus' kingdom, which is a kingdom that is already here, but it's not yet fully here. Those who experience those Beatitudes, those blessings here and now, are receiving a foretaste of that future kingdom that Jesus will bring in full. And they are a picture. When we see Jesus healing someone, we see him healing this woman or raising Jairus' daughter, we're seeing... This is a picture of Jesus doing for this one person which he is going to do for all who trust in him and for all of creation. He's going to take all the brokenness away and make all things new. And many times Hudson asks Katie and I for something and our answer is yes, but first, sometimes he kind of starts freaking out, I want this, and we're like, Hudson, I'm saying yes to that, but first, or yes, once this happens, you know, you'll, as soon as you... Eat your dinner, then we can talk about having ice cream. Yes, I'm saying yes to ice cream. Once you finish your dinner, then we have ice cream. Yes, but first, or yes, but only after this. And in Christ, all of our requests for healing and wholeness are answered. But many times it is a yes, but first. Or yes, but only after. We have to wait for it. God does his work in his time, not ours. When we wake up each morning, before our feet hit the ground, we need to believe deep down that Jesus can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves and what no one else can do for us. We need to wake up every morning and admit our desperate need for Jesus. Jesus restores what's broken. Jesus heals what's sick. Jesus revives what's dead. Jesus repairs what's been destroyed. We're all experiencing some level of brokenness some level of death in our lives because of sin. And Jesus comes in, he's making us whole, he's healing us. Let's pray. Jesus, you are as alive today as you were then, and even more so because you could be present with us everywhere and anywhere. So Lord, you let us look to you as our only hope in our most desperate situations, but you turn our eyes to you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.